Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. In the series that we've started dealing with the young church as recorded in the book of Acts, we've gone I forget now how many sermons so far on the first five chapters this evening on the sixth chapter. Next Sunday, we're going to have two more from the book of Acts. I don't remember how many more I've got prepared, but a few. Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. And in those days when the number of the disciples were multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians among the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report and full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Procius, and Nicanor, and Timon, or Timon, and uh, Parmenas, I'm glad everybody doesn't have these names, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. May the Lord add his blessing to this portion of his word. Let us go to prayer for just a moment. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to come this Sunday evening into your sanctuary where we can worship and praise your name. We thank you for the service thus far and the devotional that was led and the music and for Aaron's song and for the testimony, the prayer. Because our Father, all this has lifted us up and have set our hearts and minds in tune now that we together as a collective body might be aware of your word and what it has to say to us. Bless us as we continue in this service in Christ's name. Amen. The words of this first verse that we read are words I suppose that every preacher enjoys hearing and seeing come about, and that is a tremendous increase in church attendance. By the way, do I need to turn the air on? Okay, I saw you banning go around. I was taking a cue from that. It's good to have an increase in church attendance. And we all feel good when it happens. We had a fine attendance this morning, 86 in Sunday school. I don't know what the worship service attendance was, but it was good. And we have seen in our church in the past year and a half or so a considerable increase in attendance. Early in the book of Acts, the word was added 
there was added unto the church those that would be saved. And now the word has jumped from added to multiplying. You can increase a whole lot quicker by multiplication than you can by addition. You remember that from your school days. And now, I, I think the word purposely was used because the numbers were, were drastically increasing. Lots of people were being saved. Hundreds of people were being saved. There was not a service in this early church, no doubt. But what people were coming forward and receiving the Lord. We have churches that that's happening today. I can cite you the North Parkersburg Baptist Church. To my knowledge, there has never been a service in the past 10 years at least, but what someone has received the Lord Jesus Christ in every service, just as one illustration. And it is happening over and over and over in, in many churches. We've had a lot of people make those decisions here. We can't boast of every Sunday, but numbers are being added to the church. And the word was multiplied. They were, they were greatly increasing. This, however, creates some problems. And the problem began to arise in this very early church. When numbers drastically increase, there also arises the, the difficulties that must come because of the diversity of the people that are coming into a given fellowship. We're all of different backgrounds, different cultures, different education, different everything. I don't know how many different church backgrounds are represented by our congregation. But we know that there are a number of different church backgrounds associated with our fellowship. We know that there are backgrounds from the Church of Christ, from Free Will Baptist, from, from Methodist, as well as our own, and I'm not sure what others, from maybe from independent groups. And we all have congregated, for whatever reason, into this particular fellowship. And it happens over and over from church to church. And whenever that kind of thing takes place, we come from different church backgrounds. We come from different cultures. I'm definitely from a different culture than most of you. Things are not the same in southern West Virginia as they are in the northern part of the state. Did you know that? We just don't uh, think, act, talk, or even look alike, I suppose. There are differences. Uh, I have been almost shocked, not quite, but almost shocked, at some of the things that I have heard since I've been pastor of this church. We just don't do things that way here. Uh, or I would say to you, I never experienced that before. It's entirely different. In the northern part of the state, for example, very few people do any shouting. I'll never forget the first time anybody shouted at a sermon that I was preaching, but it was in, in Nicholas County, and I lost all train of thought as to what was going on. It scared me to death. I'm used to it now. You can do it. It doesn't bother me. Either. But there was a time that that was not true. Our educational backgrounds are different. And because of all of these differences, there can arise different opinions, different theologies. We all don't see the Bible the same. But I have told you, I hope, over and over again, that it... It does not really bother me that we don't see every point of the scripture identically the same way. Because this is the freedom within the Baptist church that we have the privilege of interpreting the scripture according to our own heart's dictate. 
And because a passage of scripture may say something different to you, or you feel you ought to react different than I do, doesn't bother me. My father explained that to me quite well one time when we were talking about this very subject. And uh, maybe I've told you this before, but my father and my mother are two different personalities. My father would, would sit or stand at a ball game and never open his mouth and never say a word, never shout, never show any emotion, whatever. And my mother would beat the person in front of her to death. <laughs> and we said to him, why don't you enjoy the ball game? And he said, who said I was not enjoying this ball game? My way of enjoyment was just different than, than your mother's way, that's all. <laughs> Uh, and so we are. We come together enjoying the Lord, every one of us, perhaps equally, but our expressions are different. But because we have these differences, again, there can become problems. Well, the problem began to develop in this early church because they were of different backgrounds. We're talking about a group of Jews, and you would think all Jews would react alike, and they'd come into the church. They had been converted out of Judaism into Christianity. They all were Jews, and now they're all Christians, and it would seem that they ought to all see the things together. There were two different groups, however, in this early church. One of them we call Hebrew Jews, which means they were the old school of Jews who had grown up in, the, in Jerusalem or surrounding area. They were the home folk. And then there were the Jews that had gone out into the world to Rome and to Greece and wherever they might have gone, they were born and reared in, in a society that was Greek. They knew the Greek language. They didn't know Hebrew. They didn't speak Aramaic, such as the home folk did. And uh, their cultures were different. They saw things differently. And so here they come, two diverse groups of people, one of Greek background and one of Hebrew background, and they were put together in the church, and there began to be a conflict. Now the... The people who were the leaders in the church were the hometown folk. The Greek Hebrew, the Greek Jew, I should say, had not been placed in a position of authority. They weren't anybody uh, on, on the boards and committees, and they weren't leading the services. They sat in the pew. They were the new folk coming into town who sat back in the pew and hadn't been given any opportunity to share in the leadership of this new church. It was all the, the old standby group who had grown up in the Hebrew community and spoke Aramaic that was leading everything. Now, the problem came in that, you remember, the church began to sell personally everything they have and they, they brought it and put it in a common treasury in order that everybody could, be, uh, could share out of that treasury. Well, the Greek Jews were saying, beginning to grumble and complain, hey, our widows are not being taken care of. The widows of the Hebrew Jew was getting more than their share, and our widows were being shortchanged in the exchange of the goods and the monies to take care of everybody in the church, and they began to grumble. So here was the beginning of a division. One group saw things a little differently than the other group, and so they began to grumble. It's Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, of course, you've never experienced anything, I'm sure, like that. You know, where, where there are different, different groups who see things differently. All right. Keep in mind now that we have Hebrew Jews and, and Greek Jews. The Greek Jews, if you remember your history, the Greeks 
where uh, people who were converted over or who became a part of the Greek culture were called Hellenistic. And so they had been Hellenized, and that's not a bad word, by the way. That's a good, proper word describing the fact that they had uh, come to accept the Greek way of life as opposed to the Hebrew way of life. What we have is a group of conservatives on one side and a group of liberals on the other. This is what we have in this original church. Now, if you are a conservative, and if I would ask you, are you a conservative or a liberal, you already know what you are, and most of you would say, I'm conservative. And probably that's true. A conservative considers himself to be fundamental. Whatever that word might mean, and that's difficult to, to interpret, but he goes on to, a conservative goes on to say that he believes the Bible. And I see churches that advertise that they're a Bible-believing church. It's difficult for me to think that there's a church that's not Bible-believing. But there are churches who say other churches are not Bible-believing because they advertise themselves as Bible-believing churches. That's the conservative element or the concept of people who think that they are different than somebody else and they're conservative. They're, they think in terms, or we think in terms, and I would consider myself a conservative to a point, we think in terms of believing that the Bible ought to be interpreted literally. I can follow that only to a point and then I have to, to separate myself from conservatives and become a liberal because I do not believe that the Bible is all intended to be literally interpreted. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later, and I'll make a point of it. So a conservative is the one who says he's fundamental, he's back to the Bible, he believes it literally, he, follow, he wants to follow it to the letter, and whatever it says, that's the way it ought to be. And But the conservative looks at the liberal, and he says the liberal person is worldly. He's, he's uh, worldly-minded. He's not spiritual. He's less strict in his ideas and attitudes as to what ought to take place. All right. Now, if you're a liberal, a liberal considers himself as one who is broad-minded, who sees the broader picture of things. He does not consider that he's looking down a tunnel. He doesn't have tunnel vision. He's looking at the overall view He's more concerned about the full man than he is about some single aspect of man. He's more interested in the physical and the mental and the spiritual. He, he considers all aspects of a person, and that's, uh, that's the idea he has of himself. And he would look at the, liberal, or at the uh, conservative and say the conservative is narrow-minded. He doesn't see the full picture. He isn't interested in looking at the overall view of things. He's very, very narrow in his viewpoint. Well, whether you are a liberal or whether you are a conservative, it makes little difference. When you get the two into a, a single body, then comes the possibilities of conflict when there are those who are liberal-minded as opposed to those who are conservative-minded. And... Whether you are one or the other, there, there gets to be this conflict, and that's the problem that the early church faced, was a group of very conservative Jews in the same church body as a group of very liberal Greek Jews. 
and the liberal people were saying to the conservatives, you're getting all of the benefits and we're not being able to, to participate in our fair share of things. Well, here's the tension. The problem was all over the distribution of food and goods to, to the widows. If you can look at this properly, you can see Satan at work. Because it is Satan's desire to divide. You see the Lord multiplies. The devil divides. The Lord adds. The devil subtracts. You know that I believe in the theory of opposites. Whatever God is, the devil is the opposite of. And if the Lord multiplies, you're going to be sure that the devil is going to divide. He's going to figure out a way to get in the midst of a group of people. And he saw his opportunity because here was two different groups coming together. And they somewhat clashed. And, it, and, and the issue was over something that was rather minor. Uh, and that was how were the widows going to be taken care of. Not that the problem was minor, but that it could easily be handled and didn't need to become an issue, but it did become an issue. Yes, a very familiar uh, thing that seems to happen in most churches. So the apostles called a church meeting, probably the first business meeting of the church. The business meeting of the church is very important. We're going to have a very important business meeting two weeks from today. I hope all of you will plan to be in that business meeting because we're going to talk about something in that business meeting that will affect us all uh, in, in many different ways. The trustees are going to make a proposal to the church that we put an addition onto the building to make it accessible for handicap both in the basement and upstairs to expand the choir loft to add some more rooms and all that. Now that's going to be presented for discussion two weeks from today. But this was the first business meeting that, that probably had taken place. And so they brought the two con the groups together, conservatives and the liberals, and they heard them out. And the apostles said, well, now, it is not the responsibility of the apostles, and if I can use now the word pastor, it is not the responsibility of the pastor of the church to be doing the thing that you want. I think sometimes churches and pastors do not comprehend properly the role of the pastor of a church. I have known pastors who didn't know what their role was and overstepped their responsibilities. I have known churches that didn't know what the role of the pastor was and, and either expected too little or too much out of the individual they called as a pastor. Some pastors conceive themselves as being the dictator of the church, the one who gives, issues the orders, snaps the whip, and everybody jumps to his tune. There is nothing in the scripture that will support that, and you can be absolutely sure that I do not believe that the position of the pastor is to assume that responsibility. I know churches in which the pastor holds the deed to the property. That is the most ridiculous thing I ever heard in all my life. It happens in the Pentecostal faith all the time. The pastor owns the building. And so he, he snaps the whip. But that is not the responsibility. I've known churches who believe that the pastor is the guy who ought to do all the things because he's the only person paid. And therefore, since he's paid, he ought to do it. I remember one time in a church, 
the pastor called on one of the deacons to pray in the congregation, and the deacon looked at him straight in the eye and said, you pray, that's what we pay you for. <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't that preacher, but I remember that happening. It is not the responsibility of the pastor to do that or to make all the decisions. This is not his church. And I have had people say to me, that's your church? No, this is not my church. No, I am a member of this church like everybody else. And I'm employed by this congregation in the position of pastor. And the position of pastor does not give me or any other person in this capacity any more authority than anybody else. The modern-day position of a pastor is, is becoming very complex. And I, I know you would be surprised if, if you could follow me just a little bit in a week's time to know the number of telephone conversations I have, the number of people who, who call me and I call and who come to my home and who, people who invite me to their home that you never know anything about and never will. It's become very complex. The position uh, falls down to probably three things that the pastor ought to be involved in. Certainly one of them is preaching, one is teaching, and the other is counseling. And when you have done those three things, you have tied up the responsibility of the pastor in those things. Now, the, when it comes to the church property, that is not the responsibility of the pastor. You can be assured that I'm not going to be presenting the thing about and making the extension onto the church. That's the responsibility of the trustees. The other officials of the church have responsibilities. And on and on we could go. The church ought to be a well-oiled piece of machinery in which everybody understands and comprehends the position of everybody else, every officer, and it works that way. I hope that I can always stay in the position of uh, preaching, teaching, and counseling. That's what I was called of the Lord to do, and that's, that's what it ought to be. So, the apostles said to the church, now look, we cannot take our time from preaching and teaching and counseling to see to it that your widows get the food that they need. Therefore, pick out seven men amongst you and give that responsibility to them. Now, if you are an extreme conservative, you will take the word seven literally, and which means that every church ought to have seven deacons. And I've been associated with churches who believe the number is magical and every church ought to have seven. Not eight and not six or any other number, but seven, because there was seven in the first church. That is literal interpretation of the scripture, and I'm not a conservative when it comes to that point. Because I don't think that that was intended at all. I was a pastor of church one time didn't have seven men. What was I going to do? Uh, matter of fact, we only had one deacon in that particular church. And a church of many hundreds of members. And for example, the Baptist church in Seoul, Korea, which is the largest church in the world with thousands upon thousands of members, uh, would have to have dozens and dozens of deacons to carry on the work. They couldn't even serve communion unless they had several dozen. So uh, the, the number is not magical. The thing that is important about what he said here was the type of men that he talked about, and he gave three criteria that have become the criteria for the selection of deacons. He says men that are of good report, good moral people, 
This is basic, and that was the first thing that he talked about, that are well thought of by the church and by the community. This is of prime importance. And secondly, he talked about being godly men, full of the Holy Ghost. And thirdly, he talked about men that were gifted, who had wisdom, who had leadership capabilities. These are the type of men that were to be selected. But the point I want you to notice is it was the church who made the selection. It wasn't the preachers, it wasn't the apostles who made the selection. And it wasn't God who made the selection, it was the church who was responsible for selecting the, the deacons that were to take care of those things. And the responsibility then fell upon the church to prayerfully consider who in their membership were likely candidates who could fill those three qualifications and serve that church in the position of taking care of the needs of the congregation whether it be physical or, or other needs of that nature. They were not to be dealing with preaching, teaching, and counseling. They were to be handing out the food and seeing to it that the physical needs of the, the congregation were taken care of. The church was to pick them out, and certainly it would follow then that the church was to support those who were selected. And this certainly ought to be true of anybody that is selected by any church body, be it deacons, trustees, Sunday school teachers, or whatever the position might be, the responsibility then, after the church has made the decision, is to give those people undivided support in order that the work of the church could be carried on. But the apostles themselves were to stick to spiritual matters and were to preach, teach, and counsel. Now, I do not believe that a, the pastor is a position that could be called a profession. No one decides that he wants to be a preacher, certainly if he, if, uh, as far as being a job is concerned. If he wants a, a nine to five position, an eight to four position, five days a week, better stay out of the preaching. Bill, you already know that, don't you? It just doesn't work that way. A person who is a pastor is one who is available to his congregation 24 hours a day, whatever the needs might be, and I hope that I have expressed that to this congregation that I am available and always will be, whatever the needs are, all you've got to do is call. And I appreciate Doran's little thing she put in the, in the uh, newsletter this week about the calling of the pastor. That, uh, that is a good article written by somebody, and I've forgotten who. A pastor is a pastor because he has been called. And if he is going into the pastorate in order to get rich, he's got a, a, a shock coming with the exception of two or three people who in this country who make millions. I don't know of anybody else in the pastorate who does that. And I think it's an absolute shame that uh, those few are raking in that kind of money. And I use that literally because that's exactly what they're doing. The pastorate is a called position, not one that is intended to make one rich. But let's get back to the deacons. The church then began to look amongst themselves to find people that were well qualified for the position that they were taking. I read those names and had difficulty with them. But I want you to notice, if you have not, that every one of those names was a Greek name. Now remember we started out with two groups of people, the Greek Jews and the Hebrew Jews. It was all Greek Jews that were selected. I think the church did it pointedly. 
Listen, if there is a problem, you ought to be a part of the solution. If you're going to complain, have a solution. If you're not, if you don't have any solutions, don't, don't say anything. If you can come up with an idea that will support and help and overcome the problem, you ought to speak up and say what you've got to say. But to complain without having anything to back it up and say, here's what ought to be done, one ought not to be talking. And I think the church put it right back on the backs of these people who were complaining and saying, all right, you think there's a problem, then you ought to be a part of the solution. And so seven Greek men were selected as deacons of this particular church to take care of the physical needs so that there was no question that but what their issue would be well addressed by the church congregation because they were going to be responsible for seeing to it that the inequities that they had pointed out were being taken care of. Now, look at the group. First that was mentioned was Stephen. We know about Stephen. He was the first martyr. The first person to die for the cause of Christ in the early church was a deacon, not a preacher, but a deacon. The second man that was mentioned was Philip. He was the first missionary. He was the guy who talked to the Ethiopian on his way back home and, and was converted, and he baptized the Ethiopian. We don't often think of deacons as baptizing, but the first guy that was baptized was done by a deacon. His name uh, was Philip. The next four that are mentioned, we don't know anything about. There is a little reference to the last guy, uh, Nicholas, but I'm not going to spend time dealing with him. But I do want you to notice that four of them we don't know anything about except their names are listed here. And I make this point. The real backbone of any church is often the unnamed, the unsung people of the congregation that you don't see out front. The people who are always a part of the congregation and are there to support. I've been here long enough to know who are the supporters of this church. And any pastor can do that and you can do it sitting there. You know who to expect on Sunday morning and who to expect on Sunday night. You know that. You know the people that are home praying for the church and for the revival and for the pastor and for the youth. You know all those things. Those are the unsung heroes of the church. That's the backbone of the church. The people of the pew whose names will never go down in any kind of history book are the people who really are the supporters of the church and give it the, the solid framework that it has. And for that I'm very appreciative. And over the years... In my 34 years of pastoring, I have learned that it is almost always that unnamed, unsung person that becomes very vital to the organization of the church and is there to be dependent upon because when the chips are down, they always are there. This is important. And apparently these were the type of fellows, uh, this was the type of fellow that these, fellow, these men were. So they called them together. And they laid their hands on them. In the Old Testament, that was a process by which they gave their blessing. Uh, they identified themselves with the lamb in the Old Testament, or the goat, or the bull, by putting their hands on them. And so they gave public accreditation to these seven men. And we continue to do that today in our ordination services of pastors and deacons, to lay our hands upon the, the men or women who are being 
uh, set aside for this purpose, we identify with them and we give them public accreditation to say we have selected you, we give you our blessing, and we give you our support. What was the result? Well, verse 7 tells us the result. And the gospel was preached, and numbers of disciples again multiplied in Jerusalem. And a great company, a great company of the priests, of the Jewish priests, also believed and were converted and became a part of the faith. How did it happen? Because there was order in the church. That was my whole beginning point with the title. There was a method established whereby the function of the church could be orderly. The pastors had responsibilities, the deacons had responsibilities, and over the history of the church it developed that other people assumed other responsibilities that we have today, but it began with pastors and deacons. And this is the way the church ought to be. A group of people coming from diverse backgrounds with different interests, even different theology, but all centered on one thing, and that is that we together are determined to worship Jesus Christ and serve him as Lord and Savior. Let's forget any differences that we might have and remember that we have a common cause. Let's forget about being conservative or liberal. I think that's ridiculous to, to spend too much time dealing with whether we're one or the other. We are people that may have different viewpoints, but we come together in one common cause, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you buy that? I believe this is what makes a strong church. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at james.com sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.